Let's pray together. God, we are thankful for this time that we can have. And God, we ask for your help this morning. Lord, we pray that you would conduct that supernatural conversation between our hearts and your word by your spirit. God, we need your help to see you clearly, to see you as you are, as the way that Isaiah saw you in this wonderful passage. God, we wanna see you high and lifted up. God, we want our hearts to be stunned this morning at your holiness, at your otherness. And God, we cannot do that on our own. So we need you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're going to be looking at the next uh, attribute of God as we continue on this sermon series throughout this summer. We're going to be looking at the holiness of God. And this sermon series this summer really can be best summarized by this quote by A.W. Tozer. He says this, he says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most threatening fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. Like I wholeheartedly agree with Tozer's claim. That there is nothing that is more important or more practical than how we view God and how we understand God. There's nothing that impacts our marriages, impacts our parenting, impacts our singleness than how we view and how we understand God. There's nothing that helps us in our time of suffering and how we battle temptations and how we spend our money and how we, how we think about life than our view and our understanding of God. Everything comes down to what you think about God in your mind. And so this summer, we're gonna kind of tease this out and kind of unpack what it means to have a correct view of God and how that impacts every aspect of our lives. Now, before we jump into uh, Isaiah chapter six, I just wanna share with you just two reasons why we're in this sermon series. There's a lot of different reasons, but let me just share two with you this morning. Here's number one. We're in this sermon series on uh, God because our view of God tends to shrink over time. That because we live in somewhat of a me-centered culture where we are inundated with messages that declare you are the ultimate authority of your life, that you are the one that determines truth, that you are the one that determines what is valuable or what is significant. We need time as a church to spend and, and to look up at God and at this immense view of who God actually is. And because we live in this type of culture, we tend to have a small view of God and a large view of ourselves. Now, we might have seasons of our lives in which we might read a good book or listen to a sermon or have a particular kind of experience in our lives that increases our view of God, but if we were really honest with ourselves, our view of God tends to leak, that that view of God shrinks as we encounter different things in our lives. Reason number two that we're in this sermon series is that we have a tendency to remake God into our own image. It's been said that God created man in his own image, and we, man, has been trying to repay the favor ever since. That we have a tendency to treat God as if it's this Build-A-Bear experience. If you've ever been into a Build-A-Bear store, you know that's a kind of a weird experience. You walk into the store, and 
instead of selecting a pre-assembled teddy bear, you have the opportunity to build a bear pretty much from scratch. You get to select the, the kind of stuffing, the outfit, the name, the sound effects that that teddy bear has. Everything can be shaped around the preferences that you want. You get to pick and choose what attributes this teddy bear actually has. And look, we can sometimes treat God in the same way. We can open up the Bible and we can uh, elevate certain attributes of God over others and we kind of pick and choose what we like about God and dismiss other attributes that we don't like about God. And we can see very clearly how our view of God, this build a God experience can negatively impact the way that we live our lives. So I believe that maybe our most fundamental problem in life is not a lack of resources. Maybe it's not a lack of of affirmation or a lack of self-worth, but maybe our most fundamental problem in life is a lack of awe and a lack of a holy fear of God because the way that we view God tends to be too small. The way that we view God tends to be too imbalanced. And the way that we view God tends to treat God and view God too similar like ourselves. And so what I want for us in this sermon series, just to be quite uh, blunt with you this morning, I want for us to walk out of this room each and every week with our jaws just hitting the floor because we're just stunned at the bigness and the otherness and the greatness of God. Like I want our hearts to be filled with with such worship and amazement at how big God is that it impacts our Monday through Saturday. That I want us to kind of come back to who God actually is, not a God who is fashioned out of our own image, but a God that we meet in God's word. And so let's look at Isaiah chapter six this morning. We're jumping into uh, chapter six of a very long book with very little context. And so it's important to know that our passage, passage this morning is somewhat of a turning point in the book of, of Isaiah, that chapters one through five deal with the spiritual failure of God's people, and yet chapters six through 11 deal with the awakening power of grace, starting with the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah has this type of experience with God in Isaiah chapter six, this experience of God's holiness and his type of response that is really something that God desired for the whole nation. And so in these first uh, seven verses, I want us to see three aspects of God's holiness. I want us to see in the first four, four verses this vision of God's holiness that Isaiah has And then secondly, we'll look at the response to God's holiness in verse five. And then lastly, we'll look at the purpose of God's holiness in verses six and seven. And so let's start with this vision of God's holiness that Isaiah has in these first uh, four verses. Starting in verse one, we read, Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Just pause there for a moment. Let's talk about this King uh, Uzziah just for a moment. King Uzziah had a uh, great reign for over 52 years. He was a beloved king. He followed the Lord well, and the Lord blessed him because of that. And he reigned for 52 years. Like we're used to presidents reigning for four years, maybe uh, eight years. This is 52 years 
that for many people, this is the only king, the only leader that they knew about, and he was a king that pleased the Lord up until the end of his life. Towards the end of his life, his uh, view of God began to shrink. Pride crept into his heart, and he violated one of God's commands in the temple. And as a result of this violation of one of God's commands in the temple, uh, he actually contracted leprosy and died shortly thereafter quite suddenly. And so you have this great leader for almost a half a century struck down by God because he violated one of God's commands. And Isaiah says that it was in that year that he saw something, that Isaiah sees the Lord seated high and above. He sees God in all of his holiness. Now, don't miss that contrast there. You've got this this earthly king, King Uzziah, who the people thought would reign really forever and ever. This was their king for a half a century. He has been struck down. He has fallen off his throne, but the one true God is seated on his throne, the sovereign king, the one whose reign will never end. We're meant to feel kind of the greatness of God even in this beginning verse. So don't skip over the last phrase in verse one, that we're told that the train of God's robe filled the temple. This is the the hem of his robe is, is completely filled the temple. It makes us wonder if the hem of his robe fills the temple, then how big is this is this throne? And if we're wondering how big is this throne, we're also meant to wonder how big is the one who is seated on this throne. That Isaiah is trying to create this image for us about the bigness and the greatness of God. And if that's not enough, look at verses two and three. There stood the seraphim. Now the the seraphim are these uh, angelic attendants to God who are worshiping God 24-7, never-ending worship. Seraphim can be uh, translated as burning ones, They are set ablaze for worship towards God. And we're not told here how many there are around the throne room of God, but if this is anything like the vision that John had in Revelation chapter five, then there are millions of these angelic attendants. There are myriads of myriads surrounding the throne room of God, worshiping him. These angels don't picture kind of an overweight Cupid that looks like a cute little three-year-old with a toy uh, bow and arrow. Now, these are terrifying creatures. These are creatures, if we saw them, we would fall on our face just in utter terror. In fact, that's what you see all throughout the Bible when humans have these types of interactions with angels. The first thing that the, the angels say is, look, don't be afraid, you're not going to die. Like, it's filled with such terror. There isn't a, a cuteness about these angels that Isaiah sees. And these terrifying creatures are worshiping God, never ending. That means then when you and I were asleep last night, these seraphim were worshiping God. That means that as we gathered for worship this morning, our worship didn't begin at 9 a.m., but we joined in on worship that was already taking place in the throne room. That means when we go to bed tonight, they're gonna continue on in their worship. So what is their song selection? What are they singing to God? Well, let's look at verse three. They're calling to one another and they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, that the whole earth is full of his glory. 
Notice the repetition there, holy, holy, holy. And in the Hebrew language, it's, they use repetition to express a superlative. So if you read the Old Testament and you see uh, kind of a, a deep pit or, or uh, something that is pure gold, it'll say pit, pit, or gold, gold. It repeats something to express a superlative. But notice here, all throughout the Old Testament, the only thing that has a, a threefold repetition is the holiness of God. It's the only time that you see this threefold repetition referring to God's holiness being utterly unique. God's holiness is in a, a category all by itself. The seraphim are straining at the leash of language to describe the otherness of God and the holiness of God that is so hard to even describe. They say, holy, holy, holy. It could be argued that holiness might be the most defining characteristic of God. Notice they don't say power, power, power. You don't say love, love, love. They say holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. At the end of verse three, you'd almost expect them to say that holiness is what fills the earth. That the whole earth is full of his holiness, but it doesn't end that way. It says holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, why do, why do they transition from holiness to glory? Well, holiness is his intrinsic, infinite, and transcendent purity and worth. Let me say that again. Holiness of God is his intrinsic, infinite, and transcendent purity and worth. It is who he is. Now, when God kind of moves out into the earth, when he displays himself for the world to see, or as John Piper says, when his holiness goes public, the Bible regularly calls that glory, regularly calls that the radiance of his holiness glory. So therefore, don't think about glory and holiness as two different things. They're really the same thing, just expressing it differently, that holiness is this intrinsic worth and transcendent purity, glory is that worth and that purity going public for the world to see and for the world to worship. The glory of God is the manifestation of his holiness. Listen to how Leviticus chapter 10 verse three kind of uh, takes the holiness and God's glory together. This is my uh, Leviticus quote for the year, so pay attention. God says, I will show myself holy among those who are near me, and before all the people I will be glorified. See, when God shows himself to be holy, what we see is his glory. You could kind of put it this way, that the holiness of God is his concealed glory, and the glory of God is his revealed holiness. I think that's partly helpful to know kind of this connection between God's glory and God's holiness, but let me just further supply three characteristics of God's holiness. I want you to think about these characteristics when you think about what's taking place in this throne room when you think about God's holiness. Okay, so three characteristics. Number one, when you think about God's holiness, think about purity. God's holiness means that he is 100% pure, that he is so perfectly good that not even a hint of evil or injustice or unkindness can survive in his presence. 
Habakkuk 1, chapter 13 says, you are of such pure eyes, you cannot even look at evil. Look, God is so pure that he despises sin. He hates sin. Look, we, we need to almost come back to the reality that, that sin is something that we cannot be flippant about. That even though the gospel is true, even though that our sin has been paid for by the blood of Jesus, we cannot have this relaxed view and this relaxed relationship with sin. God hates it. We looked even at our study in 1 John that in God, in him, there is no darkness at all. That God is not just pure, but he is the source of all that is pure. Look, Tozer again kind of puts the holiness of God in Uh, a right mindset. He says we cannot grasp the true meaning of the divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we are capable of. That God's holiness is not simply the best we know infinitely bettered. That we know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart. It's unique unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. Holy is the way God is. That to be holy, he does not conform to a standard. He is that standard. It's so hard to, to picture what, how, how much God is pure because he's in a category all by himself. That every representation of God, every manifestation of God, every revelation of God indicates his perfection and his endless purity. That God's holiness is pure. Also, the second characteristic I want to point out for us is that it's incomparable. His holiness is, is utterly unique. His holiness determines all that he is and all that he does. His holiness determines Uh, What God is like, there's nothing else that that shapes and determines God but him and his holiness, and there's no one that will ever be holy like God. Listen to these passages, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2, it says, there is none holy like the Lord, there is none besides him. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25, a passage we looked at last week says, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? But there is no category to put God in. His holiness is not just on another level. It is otherworldly. Look, the reason why I'm, I'm stressing these characteristics, that God is in a category by himself, because trying to define and describe God's holiness, and you almost get to this point where you're trying to wrap your mind around God's holiness, and you come to this conclusion that to say that God is holy is basically to conclude that God is God and there is none like him. Like that's all I can say about God's holiness. He's, he's way over here and we can't even have words to describe him. Our minds can't comprehend how holy and pure and incomparable he actually is. Let me unpack that a little bit more. That the root meaning of holy is to cut or to separate. And so to say that something is holy means that you are separating that thing or that person from that which is common. Or, or our understanding, that which is secular. The Bible does this with people, with places, with things, does this a lot. There are dozens of examples of this. The Bible talks about a holy ground, holy assemblies, holy Sabbaths, a holy nation, holy garments, a holy city, holy scriptures, and so on and so forth. 
that almost anything can be holy if it's separated that which is common and devoted to God. But notice what happens when you take that understanding and you apply it to God himself. See, from what can you separate God in order to make him holy? See, the very godness of God is to separate him from all that which is not God. See, God is, there is this infinite qualitative difference between the creator and the creation, that God is one of a kind. He is in a class all by himself. He is incomparable. And look, this is what makes discipleship, this is what makes parenting so difficult. Like when you're trying to explain God to someone that you're discipling or, or God uh, to, to, your, to one of your little kids, like you just run out of words. Like I've done this with my four-year-old Ellie. She's you know, trying to explain to her that there, there's a, a, the Trinity, that you got God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit to a four-year-old. And she's starting to understand, okay, Jesus is God, but like how does that work with the Spirit? I'm trying to explain, well, you know, Daddy is, is a father, he's also a husband, and he's also a pastor. I'm like, wait, is that heresy? Let me, let me back up a little bit. No, you know, water, there's steam, there's ice. No, that's, that's not quite. And you just get to this point where it's like, no, 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 I can't even fully explain who God is to anybody, let alone to a four-year-old. Like there's this, this category that we can't grasp, that our human language can't attain. And look, I, I just want to encourage this morning, that, that tension that we feel when our minds can't, can't comprehend God, our words cannot adequately describe God, that tension is really, really good for us. It creates awe in our hearts. It creates worship because we're like, man, I cannot fully comprehend this infinite God because I'm a finite creature. Look, I wanna encourage us to lean into that awkward tension and and to not try to, to, to shrink God into a category that we can understand. When we start to shrink God, that's when we start to remake God into our own image and and our our lives become defined by ourselves. God is incomparable, and that is a good thing. Third characteristic is that he is infinite, that God's holiness has no end, has no beginning. And what this means is this really impacts our understanding of sin, because when we sin, we're not just sinning against this God, we're sinning against a God with infinite holiness, that every sin is ultimately cosmic treason against this infinite God. Look, we sometimes think of our sin as, as not that bad because we only think about it in terms of how it's impacting the people around us and not always how it impacts God. And we think, oh, you know, my sin's not that bad because I haven't killed anybody. And yet the offensiveness of our sin and our wickedness comes because we are sinning ultimately against God himself. That the wickedness of any deed is measured, at least in part, by the nature of the one it is directed against. Okay, let me give you an example of that. If I, if I punch a wall, I, I will need to repay those damages, right? And that might be the only consequences of that. But if I punch a dog, like there will be a little bit more uh, consequences to come with that. You probably wouldn't talk to me again. Now, if I, if I punched a woman at a Starbucks, like I'm going to jail, okay? 
If I, if I go to the White House and I punch the, the president of the United States in the face, you're probably never gonna hear from me ever again, right? Like the wickedness of our sin is measured in part by the nature of the person that you're sinning against. So take that and apply it to an infinite God. Look, our sin against infinite holiness, against an infinite God means that our sin is infinitely wicked, which also means that our punishment for our infinite wickedness is an infinite punishment. And look, in in our passage this morning, as we get to verse five, Isaiah is starting to experience the infinite offense of his own sin before an infinite God. He's starting to feel like the weight of his sin being exposed before him because of the holiness of God is so pure, it's so infinite, and it's so incomparable. So let's look at the response that Isaiah has here in verse five. This response is so countercultural. It is so different than, than our understanding of how we are to interact with God. At verse five, Isaiah cries out. He says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Like, this is Isaiah's response after he hears the threefold repetition of holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. He's in a category all by himself. He's seeing millions of these, of these terrifying creatures bowing down before the king of kings, and Isaiah is hit with the reality that his character is unlike the character of the Holy One. He cries out, and literally in the Hebrew, it says, I am ruined and I am destroyed. Look, we might be tempted to think, is Isaiah overreacting here? Is he taking this a little bit too far? Like Isaiah, hey, remember God's grace. Remember God's love, like you need to kind of tone it down here just a notch. And I just wanna remind us of of the the dozens of accounts that we have throughout scripture of people interacting with the holiness of God and their sin. And when we look at it from that perspective, we see that Isaiah's response is actually quite appropriate. Let me give you a couple of examples. If you go back to Genesis chapter three in the garden, you've got Adam and Eve, and the entry of sin into our world with all of its consequences, all of the destruction of sin because of one bite from one piece of fruit, one, one forbidden taste, and sin enters our world. It's the holiness of God. You see the holiness of God in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 7, where Uzzah is helping to hold the ark, transporting the ark, and and it's kind of losing its balance. And Uzzah thinks he's doing a good thing by, by touching the ark and, and keeping it from falling and hitting the dirt. And because of one forbidden touch, God strikes him down dead. One forbidden touch. You go a little bit later in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6, you've got these 70 Israelites who are curious about the ark of the covenant. They know that God's presence kind of dwells in there. So they, they're curious. They want to peer in and look into that Ark of the Covenant, and God strikes all of them down dead for one forbidden look, instantly. Look, we might be tempted to think that God in the Old Testament was just this cranky old God who just got, out, got up from the wrong side of the bed for thousands of years, and he had some type of like personality makeover in the New Testament. He just became nice 
in the New Testament, he's now full of kindness and grace and he's tender. But let me remind us of Acts chapter five. The early church, Acts chapter five, we've got Ananias and Sapphira. They're giving their offering to the church and they exaggerate how much they give to the church and their offering. And because of one exaggeration, God strikes them down dead. This is the the holiness of God interacting with mankind. That we see that when you experience the holiness of God, it's not treated flippantly. And we see Isaiah's response here. He's standing before the infinitely pure, incomparable, holy God, and he cries out, woe is me, for I am unclean. Look, this is not an overreaction. This is an appropriate and normal response to the holiness of God. The normal response is a healthy fear and an awe of him because your sin is fully exposed before him. But Isaiah's response to God's holiness reveals that Isaiah has come to an end in himself because he's starting to see the beginning of God. That he sees himself clearly because he has seen God, the King and the Lord of hosts. But that's why we're in this sermon series. That once we see God clearly, we start to see ourselves for how we should. I just wanna pause here and just ask you this morning, do you, Do you view God in this way? Do you see God as this incomparable, infinitely pure and holy God who despises sin? Look, one way you can tell that you are viewing God and his holiness as you should is if you regularly have these types of of verse five moments with God where you just blurt out before God, woe is me for I am unclean. Isaiah sees his situation as hopeless. He doesn't even cry out for deliverance and perhaps he's underestimating the grace of God or even the purpose of God's holiness. I'm thankful it doesn't end here. Look with me at verses six and seven, this third aspect of God's holiness. We see the purpose of God's holiness. Verses six and seven, we see that God doesn't just terrify his people with his holiness for no reason. God always has a purpose Behind it, in verses six and seven, we see kind of an odd scene here that a seraphim flew to Isaiah and he's holding a burning coal from the altar and he touches his mouth with it and declares him clean, that his sin has been atoned for. This is quite odd. How can God through the seraphim declare this and for it to be actually true? Now, you might be tempted to think that this scene here is kind of a, a purification by fire that Isaiah's impurities were burned away by this fire, but you don't see that that type of image throughout the Old Testament. That's not the use of the sacrificial system. But what you see here is that this coal represents a fire that has already been spent. That this coal symbolizes a fire that has already been burnt up on a substitutionary sacrifice on a lamb that was not disfigured, but was spotless and was blameless that took the place of Isaiah. See, this scene here, this altar, this sacrifice that kind of cleansed Isaiah is meant to point forward to the true and perfect lamb of God, Jesus Christ himself, who came to take away the sins of the world. See, just a couple chapters later, 
In Isaiah chapter 53, he writes these words about Jesus who had not yet come yet, but would come 700 years later. Listen to these words. Isaiah says, surely he, Jesus, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, Jesus, was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is an image here that's meant to point forward to the perfect Lamb of God. And we see this, of course, even more clearly than what Isaiah saw. We learn in this passage that God is so holy, which means that all of us should die for our sin, yet he is so full of love that he took our place and died for us. God's holiness, part of the purpose, is not just to show the infinite gap between a holy God and a sinful man, but it's also to show us our need for Jesus. The holiness of God, part of the purpose is to highlight what Jesus has done as not just an animal lamb taking away our sins, but the perfect, spotless lamb of God who got up on a cross and he died in the place of sinners. This is part of the purpose that we see. It's not just meant to terrify us, it's meant to cleanse us. That God can declare this to be true about Isaiah because his justice has been satisfied by a death of a lamb. Look, the beauty of this passage as we stand on this side of the cross, that in the same way that the seraphim came to Isaiah and declared him clean, but God comes to each one of us this morning and declares the same thing through the blood of Jesus. Verses six and seven, God comes to us in Jesus and says that your sin has been atoned for because of my son who got up on a cross and took your place and took away your sins. Look, I'm wondering if you're here today and the holiness of God was just an intellectual understanding for you, but maybe going through this passage is becoming more of an experiential type of thing for you and you're starting to see the reality of your sin. Maybe you're having a verse five moment where you're coming to the conclusion, woe is me for I am unclean, but maybe you haven't had a verse six and verse seven experience. Look, if that's you today, if you're not a Christian, I just wanna invite you to place your faith upon Jesus, who is the perfect spotless lamb of God who died in your place so that you can be forgiven, to cry out to God, to declare that I am a sinner, that I'm in need of your grace, I'm in need of your forgiveness, to place your faith upon Jesus who died in your place. Just wanna exhort you and encourage you not to leave this room without surrendering to Jesus and giving your life to him. Look, and if you're here today and, and you are a Christian, look, our perfect spotless lamb of God changes everything for us. It changes how we think about God's holiness. Like God's holiness is not something that we get filled with terror of and judgment, but we are now filled with awe in worship because of Christ. Look, we can declare, woe is me for I'm unclean, but we can also declare, woe is me, I am unclean, but I am hidden 
in Jesus who is my spotless righteousness and accepted before him. And look, rightly thinking about the holiness of God drives us into worship. It drives us into living a life where we take sin seriously and we live a life that is fully dedicated to God. As the author of Hebrews says, without holiness, no one shall see the Lord. College Park, let's be a church that every time we interact with the God of Scripture, that we are filled with an amazement, that we are filled with awe, that we don't approach him flippantly, that our worship is defined by this throne room of God. And let us be a people who worship passionately, not just on Sundays, but we worship him Monday through Saturday through our relationships, in our work, and how we battle and fight in sin. So this morning, we're gonna have an opportunity to sing praises to God And let's have our worship be robust this morning, singing and joining in with the worship service that's happening in the throne room of God. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you are so unlike us. God, we thank you that there is none like you. We thank you, God, that you're different than us, that you're bigger than us. We thank you, God, that you have chosen to communicate who you are through your actions and through your words, that we get a small glimpse of you And God, I pray that our worship will be marked by that, that your bigness would fill us with awe. God, we need a bigger view of you, so come help us with that, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.